Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Hi, good morning. I'm Fazia Costi, and I will be your host. Um, I am here in um, Arizona, and today we are interviewing a wonderful guest, Dr. Stephen Cohen. He is actually one of the top um, doctors in Arizona and the country, and he is actually my eye doctor. So I'm I'm really thrilled to have you on the show today, Dr. Cohen. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much, Fazia. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled because not only are you my eye doctor, but I refer clients to you all the time because I think what you do is so important. Um, so I, I would like you to talk a little bit about what you do. What is your business like? What your background is? Your education, so that our listeners really have a good sense of who you are. Well, I grew up in a very small town called Brooklyn, New York. So, um, and but came out to Arizona for college. And after getting my medical training uh, in 1985, uh, came back to Arizona to start my practice. And I've been in practice in Arizona, uh, in Scottsdale ever since. And <clears throat> the beauty of, of the, the field that I'm in and the opportunity I have is that I, I examine uh, patients anywhere from infants all the way up to uh, septuagenarians and, and, um, and, and the wide array of people that I get to see and issues I get to deal with is incredibly rewarding, but probably the most significant part are the relationships that I've gotten to build up with patients over the years. And now I've been in practice long enough that I'm actually seeing children of patients who were that age when I started seeing them. So seeing second, now starting to see third generation, it's incredibly rewarding. And I'm, I'm very blessed and love what I do and, and love to share information. I was looking forward to being able to speak with you today. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you today. I, I think you are incredible at what you do, and 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 I love that you give so much back to the community. You are truly a gift to the community. So thank you. Um, let's go ahead and start out with um, let's talk a little bit about the difference between eyesight and vision. Yeah, these terms are often used interchangeably, but there really is a, a, a difference. Um, eyesight is a passive activity. That's merely your ability to see. Uh, vision is, is an active thing. It involves uh, how your eyes take in information and how your brain processes it. So the reason why that's important is, is that we often uh, confuse the two and people think because they can see clearly that their vision must be perfect. And although that's an important component, um, it is not the sole determinant of someone's vision skills. Okay. I, I love that. Uh, I never actually thought about that. So <laughs> you're, you're actually getting me to think about things I normally don't think about. So this is great. Um, let's talk a little bit about how that kind of ties into 2020 vision. People talk about 2020 vision and a lot of people think that's the most perfect vision. That's the best thing you can possibly have. Is that a true statement? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's certainly a, a significant aspect of it. We need to see clearly, to function, to be able to drive, to be able to do our, our uh, different 
uh, visually demanding tasks, but it is not the sole determinant. So too often, and particularly when it comes to children, we look at it that if they go through a vision screening, and that could be perhaps with a pediatrician or maybe with an overworked school nurse or or an untrained volunteer parent that they do at school, um, it's great that they're doing that test to be able to determine children that may have trouble seeing, but when that is relied upon as saying, okay, their eyes are fine, is overstating. It would sort of be like me checking your blood pressure and saying you're healthy. Is blood pressure important? Absolutely. But we can't make a, a conclusive comment about your overall health merely based upon what your blood pressure is. So there are other skills that are important in that process to determine optimal vision. Again, that vision being being the process part, uh, eyesight merely being the, the passive part. I can see clearly. I'm wearing glasses. I can now see the street sign. I'm wearing glasses. I can now see my computer screen. Um, so they involve other skills um, that are really important, such as the ability to focus. What that means is you can see up close, but can you sustain near work for long periods of time? Can you read for long periods of time without fatiguing, without words getting blurry, without developing headaches? Um, same thing with tracking skills, how smoothly your eyes follow a line of print. That'll determine how you're able to read, whether you're going to lose your place, whether you're going to read efficiently, be able to read quickly. Um, eye coordination skills. We have two eyes, but do the two eyes work efficiently as a team? And that's not tested when we cover one eye and read um, a, a static eye chart 20 feet away. So each of these skills play an important role, and none of them are, um, are typically tested in a screening. So the big message is that we shouldn't use, when it comes to our children, a vision screening as a replacement for an eye exam. And the comparison I always give is that most parents most are very responsible, and they make sure their kids get to the dentist at a young age. And, and preventive dental care is very, very important. And dental associations done a great job of educating us about the importance of, of oral health. But these kids are going to lose all those teeth. And yet we get them there early. And, um, and none of, to my knowledge, very little of what we learn is through our teeth. And yet it's determined or estimated about 80% of what a child learns is through the visual system. And yet we rely upon, again, a 10-second pediatrician school screening, vision screening, or a school screening to determine that their their eyes are fine. And again, it's just the tip of the iceberg. At what age would you recommend um, maybe a first eye exam? A good question. And that varies uh, depending on who you speak with. I've been involved in a program uh, for many, many years since its inception uh, called Infant C infant SEE, and it's a free eye exam for kids up to one year of age. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, all that we need, and you think, how can you examine a one-year-old? They can't see the eye chart. But you'd be amazed at how much information we can get. And I've learned to be very, very fast because we may have a short period of time that we have their attention. But I can check things like their ability to have their eyes work together. I can check primarily to make sure there's not a potentially a hidden lazy eye developing, which means one eye is not developing as well. And caught early, that's important. So I've examined as young as three months and have been involved in this infancy program for a long time, which are one-year-olds. But certainly at the very least, uh, we feel that uh, kids should be have their eyes thoroughly evaluated by the time they're starting their formal um, education, kindergarten, first grade. Because between the ages of four and eight, particularly, these vision skills are developing the tracking, the focusing, eye coordination, eye teaming, all these skills that play a role in the learning process 
are developing and we need to make sure they're developing appropriately so that as the demand in school increases and they go from picture books to to chapter books that their eyes are working efficiently so they can efficiently perform how often would you recommend a child in that age group have their eyes tested the standard of care is for them to be tested uh, checked once a year that most of the time is sufficient. Certain circumstances may suggest a, an interim follow-up between that, but once a year is, when, is typically sufficient to make sure that everything is developing uh, on schedule. And the key that we look at when we talk about development, and I know it's a big part of, of what you advocate, is that we rely so much on the calendar. The calendar tells us when a child will start school. The calendar tells us about you know what age they should be at a certain stage of their education. And yet inside each child is their own calendar. And that calendar may be developing at a different, a different rate. So the fact that, you know, we say, when does a child crawl? Uh, when does a child walk? When it's ready. Uh, and, and the same thing happens with these skills. So it's um, making sure that, that everything's developing at a time that we know the expectation of performance is there, that the skills are developing commensurate with that. Okay, well... I, I really appreciate this. Um, could um, issues with these skills affect activities like driving or playing sports or other activities? And, and if so, how? Yeah, unquestionably, when we look at it, even for adults, um, the things that we look at in order to have depth perception, the ability to judge things, sort of the 3D vision that we all rely upon when we judge distances, when we reach for something, uh, we need two eyes that are seeing about equally and working together. So it stands to reason if one eye is not functioning as well, or if the two eyes are not functioning efficiently together, that they could have a problem with depth perception. And then you think about the, you know, the two subjects you brought up, driving and sports. Uh, well, with driving, we need that to judge distances. And with sports, that often determines athletic performance, whether a baseball player is swinging early or late, or um, you know, in any sport, a tennis player uh, being able to, to make a good return or missing the ball. Uh, so that it, um, it absolutely can impact based on not just clarity, how cl clearly someone's able to see um, when they're performing, but how the eyes work together. So all the skills I just mentioned play a role. You think about tracking skills. What about if you're tracking a baseball? Um, when you think about eye coordination skills, what about being able to judge where a ball is as it's coming? Because you need the two eyes to determine how far away it is and where it's going. Is it coming closer, moving away? All of those things play a part. So the two that you hit, I think, are really um, two main areas that it's important in driving skills and athletic performance, in addition to the near things that we look at, computer work, reading, and, and those skills. So if somebody's having an issue with one of their eyes, it's obviously, it's, it's clear that they need to go see somebody. So let's say they come in to see you. What are some things that you can do to help them improve uh, their vision? A great question. Uh, one of the things that's interesting that when you said if they're having problems with an eye, it's obvious. Just want to point out that a lot of times with a lazy eye, particularly if it's a child, they don't know what's happening. Because with both eyes open and the good eye just takes over. So there are often children that because maybe they haven't been seen that are developing a lazy eye. And a lazy eye can develop even if one eye isn't turning in or out. Those are the obvious ones we see when we look at, at a child that looks like one eye is pointing straight and one eye is pointing in a different direction. Those types of lazy eye situations are more obvious. But the subtle ones where one eye is underdeveloped or there's a huge difference in the prescription, those often go unnoticed. So they may not even be getting into my office to be seen because they seem like they're seeing fine. But once they come in, do an evaluation of all of those skills that can be 
qualified and quantified. We can see the skills look like they're working well and we can measure are those skills in a range that we need them to be. And then based upon that, it could be not, no treatment needed and just monitor continued progression of development. It could be uh, potentially glasses and it may even be glasses for a child that can see well or even an adult, but maybe they need a little bit extra help. Maybe they need um, uh, you know, a little support in, in the near work with a mild prescription. Um, and it could also be working on those skills. If you think about a child, for example, <clears throat> that has a lisp, you can hear that. Parents can hear it. Teachers can hear it. So that's recognized in the sent to a speech therapist who assesses it. And then they're taught how to properly use <clears throat> their mouth and their tongue and the different muscles around there to be able to enunciate properly. And once they go through that therapy, it's gone. Because now every time that they use, they speak, they're reinforcing the proper way to do it. But we don't have the opportunity as children to mimic our parents when it comes to vision. So we don't have that same uh, situation where we're getting those that that those cues. And as they develop, if they don't develop efficiently, we can do things in the same way we can with speech therapy when it comes to vision. That we can look and say there are people that do work just like a, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, to work on those in individual skills to enhance development of those skills to the level they need to be for the demands on their eyes. Okay, so, um, wow, that, that's that's amazing. So how long does it normally take for a child to get to the point where their eyes are fully developed and they're, you know, they're pretty stable? Uh, when <clears throat> When it comes to normal development, my expectation, although I said we we some we should sometimes de-emphasize the calendar because a child will develop in its own level, but third grade becomes a really important time because it's often described that third grade a child stops learning to read and now reads to learn. Now that it's more about content rather than process. So the demand in about third grade visually increases. If you look at a, a first grade textbook and third grade textbook, there's often a difference in how many words there are on a page, how mm-hmm. close the lines are to each other, because there's an expectation that visually they're capable of seeing that. So third grade, about eight years of age, we expect these skills to be normally developed. For children that have problems in this and they go through a therapy type program, typically, if it's these basic problems, we're looking at three to six months um, to to, uh, remediate that. That can vary to some degree, but that gives a ballpark idea of what it takes. Uh, If a child is developing a lazy eye, it might take a little bit longer. And then a category that I'm sure we'll, we'll get to about visual perceptual skills, how the brain processes visual information, that can take a little longer as well. But, um, but I think the three to six months for basic skills, maybe six to 12 months of going through a program for more involved skills. And the beauty of it is, is once these skills improve, they're intact. It's not something that they have to keep doing for the rest of their lives. Okay. Well, you, you know, when you were talking about third grade, that's that's the year that I got glasses. <laughs> you know, that's the year that I had to start wearing glasses because I couldn't read the I couldn't read the books. Yeah. Do you find that as a very common thing? Yeah. If we look at it, and even if you look at statistical charts about the development of nearsightedness, um, it, you'll see that it, between um, about seven to ten years old and eight years being again a real critical time, it's so common to see that type, it's almost stereotypical, that Mm -hmm. it's starting to develop the basic vision issues, meaning I need glasses. Um, So at around the same time that we expect all these other skills to be well-developed is about the time because demand increases, there's growth that occurs, there may be genetic factors, 
that the onset of nearsightedness uh, often um, sets in. It's eight years old, very common story. If I had to pick one as a stereotype, it's going to be an eight-year-old child does a lot of reading <laughs> and they're, they're going to wind up where they may need glasses. Wow. Okay. That, that's just fascinating. Um, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about um, dyslexia and other learning problems. Are, dis- is, uh, are dyslexia and learning problems actually um, undiagnosed learning problems? It's a great question. And uh, the simple answer is, is no. Um, that we, the, an eye doctor does not diagnose dyslexia. There are um, other specialists that, that do that, um, um, but uh, we can see indications of that. Um, dyslexia is a processing issue of the brain. It's not a, a vision issue. However, um, it's been found that children that have learning problems and children that are dyslexic have a higher amount of vision problems that go with it. So we see more incident in that population of children that may also have um, a vision problem and how their eyes work together. And they may also have a problem in uh, another area called visual perceptual skills. And if I would try to simplify looking at this, um, these, these three main areas, think about if we have a pie with three pieces. The first piece of the pie is, can you see? Do you need glass to see? That was you in third grade. Yes. Um, the se- and that's, uh, you know, any eye doctor that, that a, a parent brings a child to, we're going to test that. Are the eyes healthy? Do they need glasses? Can they see? The second piece of the pie, which is not always tested, are the, the skills that I mentioned before, tracking how smoothly their eyes follow things, focusing that they can see things clearly and sustain that. And then the eye coordination skills with the eyes work efficiently together. We test those areas. So that's the second. And the third is called um, uh, visual perceptual skills. That's the highest order. And that's more neurological. Visual perceptual skills are how our brain processes visual information. So as an example, if you have a child sitting in a classroom who has to copy something from the board, There may be one child who has good what's called visual memory skills. That's the ability to see something and hold on to that visual image for a sufficient amount of time. So one child who has good visual memory skills will see a sentence on the board they have to copy and be able to copy the entire sentence without hesitation. You may have another child that those skills are not well developed and they have to keep going back and forth to their page, maybe one word at a time. So you can see that they're going to be less efficient, they're going to be slower in the skills, and it's going to become an impediment to efficient learning. So that's one example. There are several of these visual perceptual skills. So to summarize, one, can you see? Two, how efficiently do your eyes take in visual information? And then three, how does your brain process that information? Now, the third category becomes important in the question that you just asked, because what's been found is that the first issue, can you see, is really not related to learning problems with dyslexia. But studies are showing there was a study out of, out of Harvard that showed that children who are dyslexic are twice as likely to also have a tracking or a focusing or an eye teaming or a visual perceptual problem. The recommendation of these two authors out of Harvard was that in any workup for dyslexia learning problems, testing these skills should be part of that process so that we're also uncovering these other potential roadblocks to efficient learning. So the, the, the simple answer is no dyslexia and learning problems are 
not necessarily uh, vision problems, but there could be vision problems related to it. And one other quick area I want to cover is that sometimes a vision problem can masquerade as a learning problem or okay. dyslexia or attention deficit, for example. So give you a quick example. If a child is in the classroom and their eyes are not working well together so they can't sustain near work for long periods of time, what typically happens? They become easily distractible. So they tend, they can't look down at the page for long because it's uncomfortable to do so. So they tend to look off. They'll look across the room, they'll look at a window, they'll look at someone else in the class and the teacher will say, get back to work. And then they do it for a while and they become distracted. Well, the label that they'll often get is they must have an attention deficit issue because we can't keep them on task. Maybe it's an underlying and undiagnosed vision-related problem that is making it difficult to stay on task. So that's one area where the, the, um, there could be sort of a misdiagnosis. Well, um, so I know I, I refer quite a few of my clients to you uh, when I think that they have potential eye issues or, or just to rule it out. Um, do, you, do you see a lot of clients like that? Do you have a lot of patients that come in and, you know, maybe they're diagnosed with dyslexia or maybe ADHD or, or even anxiety and, and instead you find an eye issue, an eye problem? Yeah, and I'll give you probably the quintessential example in my career. Um, there was a boy that was sent to me, this is many, many, many years ago, um, that had been to his, he was complaining about headaches. And he'd gone to, been to his pediatrician, he went to an allergist, um, went to a, a neurologist, and they were ready to send him to a psychiatrist, thinking that this was an emotional issue. He tended to complain about getting headaches when he was reading, and yet in that process, through all those uh, uh, referrals, nobody thought maybe maybe he needs glasses. Maybe we should send him to an eye doctor. Finally, someone suggested that he wound up in my office, and in this case, all he needed were reading glasses because there was so much strain on his eyes, he would get headaches from the effort within a short period of time. But there's an old saying, if you hear hoofbeats, don't look for zebras. You know, look at the obvious things. If a child is complaining about headaches when they read, What's the mechanism of reading is typically using your eyes. Check that first. So, yes, I see that was probably the most glaring of how um, it makes a, a difference. I do see a disproportionate number of children that have these vision problems because since I test for it, there are a lot of teachers, nurses, and professionals like you that uh, say something's going on here and we're not, not uncovering what it is. Let's make sure there's not a vision problem. So uh, because I, I test in that and I, I feel so passionate about this area, uh, I do see a, a, lot of, a lot of kids and get a lot of referrals to make sure these areas are not contributing to whatever issues they're having. And, and I'm glad you brought up the anxiety issue because that's often um, unrecognized. If you and I, as an adult, had a problem like this, we would come up with some pretty good reasons not to read, not to engage in near work for long periods of time. Kids don't have that luxury. They have to get the work done. They have to uh, do the homework. They have to read. Um, so think about the, the stress and anxiety it can cause a child if they know that's going to be difficult to do that, or if they know they're going to wind up getting a headache after they do it. And I've seen kids spend twice as much energy avoiding doing a task than if they just did it. So, and parents often say that to me. I said, do you find that homework takes all night? And parents will often laugh and say, what are you eavesdropping in my home? And I said, yeah, <laughs> but what's happening is that your child knows that this is a challenge to do this. And they're willing to invest more energy avoiding it because they know if they try it, it's it's not going to go well. So it's yeah. that anxiety level is often manifested as a result of the, the challenge that a child faces. 
Yeah, it's really sad because if if kids could do all the things they need to do, they would. They want to please their parents. They want to please their teachers. So um, do all doctors, do all eye doctors test for the same things you test for? Not necessarily, because it, um, and that's that's often been a challenge over the years, and particularly when I've been working with uh, <clears throat> with nurses and and teachers, because I have this uh, one teacher in a school district not far um, who uh, I've seen a lot, sent a lot of patients. She's a, interestingly a third grade teacher. We talked about third grade before, and she is um, batting a thousand when it comes to uh, suspecting something's going on. So she is phenomenal saying something's not right. I want to test it further. Teachers, particularly in the public school system, have to be careful not to refer to a specific doctor. So she might give two or three names of people she'd know doing this work, or she might say, well, this is my eye doctor. But anyway, she's been really good at identifying that. Um, and she knows that I'm going to test for it. Where the problem comes in is when a professional, like a school nurse or a teacher, suspects something and maybe the parent will take them to their eye doctor. Well, if they don't test these areas, obviously they're not going to find it. And what I've had a lot of these professionals, education professionals come back and say to me is that parents are coming back annoyed with them because why did you refer me that my doctor didn't find anything? Well, if they didn't test those areas, they may not find it. So it is important to, uh, for parents to ask if it's their doctor, do you test these skills for children, and the exam for a child is different than you do for an adult, um, and to make sure that those areas are being included, because it's not guaranteed that it's going to be tested, because most of the time, an exam is going to include, does my child need glasses, and are their eyes healthy? And that's the bare minimum. These other skills um, need to be tested, often are not, and if not, obviously, we're not going to find the issue. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to find a doctor that's going to test for these skills, because I know I've asked certain parents to go and have their eyes checked. I've referred them to you specifically. And they said, no, thank you. We just had our eyes checked. And they don't seem to understand that there's specific things they need to be testing for. So yeah. I, I think that's a really important point to make. It is. And it's 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 a challenge. It's a challenge for, for uh, professionals like you when you're making that suggestion and you really suspect something's going on. And understandably, a parent's saying, I did the responsible thing. I took my child and they got their eyes examined. There's no problem. But they, it's, um, it's, it's a real challenge. And that's why things like the program you're doing now and so much of the outreach stuff that you do that educates people and gives them the opportunity to say that vision is more than what's right in front of your eyes. Um, Exactly. And that gives them the opportunity to look at and say, I need to make sure that my child is doing okay in these other areas uh, and not just have this false sense of security because they don't need glasses to see the board in school. Exactly. So not all eye doctors are equal. Um, I I really want to thank you, Dr. Stephen Cohen, for for being on the show today. We're going to take a break here in just a couple minutes. Before we take the break, I would love for you to give uh, your information. How can someone contact you if they'd like to work with you? Well, my my office is in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I've I have um, had communication with uh, people all over the the country on different times that I've spoken and written articles. So I welcome if someone has a question. Uh, my website is uh, after the old Jackson Brown song, "Doctor My Eyes," is uh, www my eyes all spelled out d o c t o r m y e y e s dot net doctor my eyes dot net. Um, my office phone number is four eight zero. 513-3937. And um, it could also be emailed at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot Cohen, C-O-H-E-N at drmyes.net. <clears throat> so if someone has a question, they can email. If let's say they're not local, 
um, and I'll be happy to <clears throat> answer a question, maybe guide them in the right direction. But the important thing is getting that information out there. Thank you so much. And, and just for the listeners to know, we are launching a uh, executive function magazine January 2022. If you would like to get a copy of that free quarterly magazine, feel free to go to my website, executivefunctioncoachaz.com and fill in um, your email into the little spot on there and make sure you validate your email and we will be happy to send you a copy of that free magazine. And hopefully Dr. Cohen will have an article in there as well. So um, thank you for listening. We'll be back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you are struggling with organization, time management, or other executive functions, Fazia Costi is ready to put you on the path to success. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Fazia works with in-person clients at her Phoenix, Arizona office or with clients anywhere across the country remotely. Mention that you heard this ad from the Focus on Success radio show and receive a free initial consultation with Fazia, plus $50 off an intake evaluation, a $300 value. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com or call 480-648-1122. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fazia Costi or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Fazia at Executive Function Coach AZ.com. Now, back to Focus on Success. Hi, welcome back. I'm Fazia Costi, and today we are talking to Dr. Stephen Cohen. Um, he is a wonderful um, eye doctor here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he's actually my eye doctor. So welcome back, Dr. Cohen. Hi, it's, um, I'm enjoying getting a chance to speak with you about these subjects. I'm really excited that you're here today. You know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the increased use of devices like computers and tablets and, and how those impact eye problems. Because I, I remember when I was going through my doctoral program and I had to take my, my final exam, which was several months long, and it was a lot of writing. Um, at the end of that uh, three-month period, my eyes really were very strained. In fact, I remember going in at the time I had a different eye doctor and I went in to go see him and I was having trouble. I, I was having trouble with the, just focus. Uh, I was having trouble tracking things. 
things looked blurry. I, I, I was really having a difficult time seeing, and I thought that there was something wrong with my eyes. And I found out that it really wasn't that there was something wrong with my eyes. It was that I was in front of the technology for so long, for so many hours per day. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the most, uh, maybe the <clears throat> one of the most predominant issues we're facing now, and particularly in the last year and a half through the pandemic, with the number of people who are working remotely and children who are learning remotely. Um, if I may backtrack one thing, I want to clarify one thing about you talked before about the visual sure. skills. Um, the one thing I want to mention the fact there are three components to the pie. Can you see? How do your eyes take in information how efficiently? And how does your brain process it? In, a, in a, even an eye exam I do, we typically don't test that third one in, in our office. There are standardized tests that are available that will quantify if your child's 10 years old and one skill may be at an eight-year, three-month level, that we can quantify where it is so that when they work on it, it can be monitored. Those things are done by certain um, certain eye doctor's offices, other uh, certain professionals. So those tests are available. But I wanted to clarify that so that parents don't go into their eye doctor and test these other areas and say, but why aren't you doing the visual perceptual? Those are, are filling out that third piece of the pie, but it's not done during a routine eye exam. Even one like what I do that covers these other vision skills um, that we talked about. Now, getting to, to your issue, this has been, um, well, I have this conversation every single day with patients through, and throughout the day, uh, because even people who see clearly often will struggle when they're using devices. And <clears throat> there are two main areas that this has impacted. One is the unintended consequence of the device, uh, which uh, is what is it doing based upon spending all our time up close and what about this topic of quote unquote blue light? And the other area is what impact is it having on our eyes uh, as a society? Uh, it wasn't that long ago that we were all hunters and farmers. And we went from hunters and farmers and now we're all computerists. We spend all our time in front of devices. We weren't designed for that. If we were, we'd have one eyeball in the middle of our forehead because that's all we need. We don't need the two eyes. We don't need our peripheral vision because everything <laughs> is right in front of us. Well, that's not the way we're designed, maybe evolutionary-wise. Eons from now, we'll have one eyeball in the middle of our forehead. But, the, the, um, but for now, we need to figure out how to make things work with the system we do have. And um, when we spend tremendous amount of time doing near work, we increase the demand on our eyes. We increase the strain on our eyes. Uh, our eyes work harder. Our eyes fatigue more. So the example you gave is so stereotypical of what we hear. Someone who could otherwise see well, but the more time they're spending on a computer, on, an, on a tablet, on uh, a phone, they find that their eyes fatigue. They find that things get out of focus. Uh, they find that maybe they, they start to get headaches. Uh, they may find that as they're doing it, they're having trouble comprehending and retaining the information they're looking at. The performance slows down. Uh, there, there are so many areas that it affects uh, and symptoms that people will experience that they think, okay, it's just the price tag of technology. So there's, there's a, a law of unintended consequences, meaning we, we do something positive, but they're the unintended results that we don't go in planning. Anyone who helped design these things, whether it's Steve Jobs from Apple or anybody else that helped change the arc of the way we do things through technology, didn't go in intending for people to have eye strain and all these other problems, but they did come from the advances. So technology has gotten way, way, way ahead of us. And there are two areas that we're seeing that it's really significant. One has to do with um, the wavelength of light that is coming from these devices. 
And we know that ultraviolet radiation, which is the light we can't see, but we know UV, we all accept the fact that prolonged exposure to ultraviolet can damage our skin and can damage our eyes. In the short term, UV exposure can cause a sunburn. In the long term, it can cause skin damage and cancer. Well, in the visible spectrum, you think about the rainbow, blue light is right next to ultraviolet on the spectrum. Like ultraviolet, it's also a very high energy wavelength that tends to penetrate deeply in our eyes. And here's where the problem is. We're now exposed to higher levels of blue light indoors, where before it was only outdoors. The per- one of the purposes of blue light is that blue light stimulates the pituitary gland. It helps to wake us up. So <clears throat> you think of it in terms of lifestyle issues, blue light would help wake us up in the morning to get out and go hunt and farm and do our chores. Uh, but now we're exposed to levels indoors that we weren't in the past. So one of the things that high levels of blue light does is it depletes melatonin. A lot of people take melatonin supplements to help them get uh, to sleep. Uh, Well, melatonin is a chemical in the body that helps move our bodies toward the sleep cycle. So a lot of times when people are, say, getting ready for bed and they're in bed, maybe they can't fall asleep, they'll pull out their iPhone or they'll pull out a tablet and they may look at emails and just something because they're not able to sleep. Unbeknownst to them, they may actually be waking themselves up because one of the things blue light does is deplete melatonin. So it can can mess with our sleep cycle. Additionally, blue light can cause... Uh, eye strain, fatigue, um, headaches. So when I talked about UV, where we say ultraviolet in the short term can cause a sunburn, long term can cause skin, skin damage. Blue light in the short term can cause eye strain, fatigue, and headaches. And in the long term, it's been implicated in contributing to macular degeneration, which is damage to that sensitive part of the back of our eye that gives us our sharpest vision. So when we look at the cumulative effect, we can't do anything about the UV we were exposed to when we were children and spend time in the sun. Uh, Maybe we didn't know to use sunscreen at the time or how many people I know when I was growing up would, would cover their body in baby oil so that they would really <laughs> maximize their their um, their suntan. Um, we know now that doesn't make any sense, but back then nobody knew the difference. Um, so in the same way that that is impacting, we can't do anything about past exposure to blue light or what it may do for eyes, but we can do things to mitigate it now. So when you have these high levels of blue light that are now emitted by fluorescent lighting, so the lighting sure. that's been changed to that's that's good for the environment. It's not necessarily good for us. A lot of children actually experience a lot of agitation with blue light. I've had teachers say they've turned off half of the light bulbs in the room because they find the kids are just uh, more calm when they're not hit with that intense light and is heavily emitted by things like um, uh, device screens, like an iPhone screen, uh, a device screen or um, uh, a computer monitor. And there are ways to turn it down. Many people know that, for example, iPhone has that nighttime mode. Well, they're not turning down the brightness. You're actually turning down that blue end of the spectrum. So you're not getting that same effect. But the blue light issue has become really, really important partially because now we're understanding why so much near work is causing eye strain and fatigue and some of the things that that you described. And we know now that it can contribute to damage in the long term, but now we can do things about it. There are ways to turn it down on the device itself, but now we also have coatings that could be put on glasses that protect from blue light. So the coatings that are used will block from ultraviolet, will help to reduce glare and could block a substantial amount of the blue light. Now, people can find blue light filters and blue light glasses online, and they may be fine. The only caution I've given to people about that is 
if you go somewhere online to buy that, see if in the description it will describe how much blue light is blocked, because they may be able to get um, the ability to say it blocks blue light, but maybe it only blocks 10%, where we have coatings that we use in our office that, depending on the coating, could block 50 to 90% of blue light. So blue light is not bad for your eyes. There are places around our country that they use blue light, for example, in the winter because of, of depression, because of the lack of sunlight up in Alaska. Often indoors, they use these blue lights uh, to be able to stimulate and, and deal with mood alteration because of the depression that's often dealt with. So blue light is important. It's not that this is all bad, just like ultraviolet is not all bad, but um, it's the amount and being able to monitor that. So if if uh, people go online to get these blue light glasses, two things. One is to try to find out how much blue light is blocked. And secondly, keep in mind that a lot of times if they're inexpensive, the lenses may be kind of cheap. And I've had people come to me and say, I got those blue light glasses. They gave me headaches. But it may not have been the blue light coating that gave the headache. It may have been the fact they were using a cheaper lens. If your job is to stand on your feet all day, your shoes become really important to you pretty quickly. And if you have shoes that almost fit, you're not going to be surprised if at the end of the day, while your feet hurt and you want to take your shoes off and put your feet up. Well, we're sort of sitting on our eyeballs all day long. So if we use lenses that aren't as good quality, that can cause distortion and may cause strain. So you want a good quality lens with a, a, a decent amount of blue light protection is really important. Is this blue light coating something you can put on prescription lenses or is this something that you need a separate pair of glasses for? No, fortunately, it is It is a coating. You're absolutely right. So so it can be applied to the lenses. If, you, um, if you're ordering a pair of glasses, um, that it can, it's easy to just, when in the processing, to have the blue light protection done. And we're doing that almost universally now, particularly with kids, but certainly even with adults who are spending a lot of time working uh, on, on devices, people who are working remotely. And that's why I said in the last year and a half, through the pandemic, this has become such a predominant issue uh, because the amount of time it was estimated before the pandemic that kids spent about uh, 10 to 12 hours a day on devices. And that was before the pandemic. Now what is it, 15, 16 hours where almost all waking hours they're, they're in front of devices. And again, we're not designed for that. So yes, it can be done. And then even for people who don't need a prescription, we can put better quality lenses in so they have less distortion, even if there's no prescription. And sometimes I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, even a mild prescription takes the edge off a little bit, allows the lenses to do a little bit of the work so the eyes don't have to. So we can incorporate a, sort of a computer RX, a computer prescription that puts just a little bit of power to, to decrease the demand on the eyes a little bit. So um, yeah, we can do it in prescriptions. As a matter of fact, uh, almost every time we're doing prescription glasses, we're talking about this blue light protection because it's it's become so predominant. Is the, I, I'm assuming this is pretty standard for you, but is this standard across the board for all eye doctors? I, I certainly hope so. I, I mean, I'm hearing enough about it and seeing enough about it that I think it's become more of a, a universal discussion. But um, I have one, I, I see it as one advantage in, in my background is that one of my degrees is in education. And uh, so I have a kinship with educators and I love, I think there's no more noble profession than an educator. But it also has trained me that, the most important thing that I do is to educate. Certainly, I want my patients leaving my office seeing better than when they came in, but I also want them leaving knowing more than when they came in. So I try to make a point to educate them about advances that have occurred, options that may be available to them, and through the course of discussion, flesh out information about their lifestyles to be able to provide potential solutions for 
the issues and challenges and opportunities they may be facing. Um, so I, I, it's become a much more predominant issue. And if your eye doctor is not bringing it up, you can certainly ask about it. There's a lot in the literature. The first lecture I went to about blue light a number of years ago, uh, the doctor up there said that she had two children, seven and nine year, years old, and they had what she called their iPad glasses. In this case, the iPad glass had no prescription and only blue light protection. And she had two rules. They had 30 minutes on the iPad. And secondly, they had to put their iPad glasses on before they turned it on. And all the iPad glass had was the blue light protection because she was such a strong advocate. Well, at the time I was looking and saying, geez, that may be more than we need to do. And I've come to realize over the last several years that she was ahead of her time and she was correct. This is an issue. This is an issue we can do something about. And it's an issue having an impact that is preventable. So if somebody has never worn these glasses before, can they just start at any time and it would still be a, a really good idea for them to wear them? Or is there a certain point in time where it's just not going to have an effect? No, I think that this is one that, that um, you know, in the same way, if you look at it, if someone has done, maybe they didn't know, or they haven't done a very good job of protecting their skin, we wouldn't look at it and say, okay, well, you don't have to bother now. At any time you start, it's still going to provide a benefit. So with this, I think it's a very good question that, yeah, they're going to benefit from whatever point they begin to use blue light protection. And there are two ways people will see it. Some people don't like the ones that have a yellowish tint to it. And the yellow tint often will block some of the blue. But the coatings that we use and many of them that are, are that are out there that are a little better, really, when you look at the glasses, they don't look any different. They look clear and it looks clearer looking through them. But if you hold the glasses at an angle and you see reflection off the surface, the reflection will have sort of a bluish, slightly purple tint to it. And that tells you that it has that, but it doesn't distort colors at all. But there's no time in which uh, it's too late for someone to start looking at protecting their eyes. There's no age, there's no activity, um, there's no timetable. <clears throat> if you don't know about it before and you're spending a lot of time on devices, particularly if you're experiencing any eye strain or fatigue or uh, even things like, gee, after I'm on a computer a while and I look up, it takes a while for my vision to get clear. It's always a good time to start. What about for um, people like me who wear reading glasses? Um, can you get that same coating in reading glasses? Yes. And any prescription, we can get that, that, um, that coating. Um, it could be computer glasses. It could be reading glasses. It could be your everyday use glasses. It could be uh, bifocals. It could be the progressive no-line bifocals. So anyone that needs vision correction and gets glasses, uh, that um, blue light protection can be added to it. So it'll block virtually 100% of ultraviolet. It'll, it'll reduce glare dramatically. Glare is a real problem, certainly out here in Arizona with the amount of sure. uh, sunlight we have. It'll reduce glare, and it also then will block a good portion of the blue light as well. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly valuable information. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, eyes changing. I hear that uh, people's eyes are changing. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, what is happening? It's a it's a great segue from what we just discussed because what we just discussed is one of the the reasons that that eyes are changing. Um, what again we were not designed to do the things that our lifestyle demands of us now. Um, we we spent more time at distance now we spend more time up close and it's almost as if our eyes are saying well if I'm spending all my time looking at things that are say. 16 to 24 inches away, maybe I should set my eyes for that. And a warning sign people could experience is that after they do near work, they look up and it's not clear in the distance and it takes a while to transition. That's a, a red flag right there. But what's been found is that, you know, we've just, we're still dealing with 
um, the term pandemic has become uh, ubiquitous with our time right now, uh, but there's actually in the last few years, a lot of discussion in the eye care field about an epidemic of myopia. What myopia is, is nearsightedness, meaning you have trouble seeing far away. And it's been estimated that by the year 2050, half the world's population is going to be nearsighted, meaning half the world's population are going to need glasses to see far away. Why are we experiencing that in such a short period of time? Well, it's because of the changes and demands of in our lifestyle, the device use. Uh, it's estimated that up, upward of 57% of people in the United States will be nearsighted. So this is a significant issue that's occurring, and it's changing particularly in kids. You mentioned about the fact that eight years old, you need glasses. That's that stereotypical time we see that. We're seeing kids younger that are developing that. We're seeing a lot of times kids that are developing much, much higher degrees of nearsightedness. And not only is it an issue that these children may need glasses, if a prescription gets over a certain level, they actually become at a higher risk later on in life for retinal detachments, for glaucoma, for cataracts, for a number of significant, significant eye problems. So being able to prevent that development of nearsightedness or slow it down is critical. Now, what's been found, and we now have ways to slow the process down or prevent it. One of the things that's good for parents to do with their young children, it's been found that two hours or more spent outdoors tends to prevent the onset of nearsightedness. So if kids are spending outdoors, there are a number of reasons why the outdoor environment and looking far away is helpful. But what it's been found to do, it helps to prevent children from becoming nearsighted to begin with. And the flip side of that is two hours a day or more spent on a device increases the risk that the nearsightedness is going to get worse. Now, if you have two nearsighted parents, the risk of a child becoming nearsighted goes up dramatically. But even for them, there are now steps we can take to slow that process down. So one is lifestyle, more breaks, more time off of a device, more time spent outdoors. Um, you know, a lot of those cautionary tales that par parents tell their children about, you know, get off the computer, do something. It's, it's interesting. We used to tell yell kids to go to their room. Now we tell them to get out of their room and go outside. <laughs> um, but the, uh, that's, that's really helpful. That really is helpful. So um, there are things we can do. There are different types of lenses. There are contact lenses. There are even eye drops used at bedtime that have all been found to slow down this process. It's really a critical wow. issue that we need to pay attention to because our lifestyle is only moving in one direction. That's more and more technology. And we need to look at those unintended consequences and what can we do to lessen uh, those, those issues going forward. Thank you so much. Well, we have just a few minutes left before the end of the show, and I want to talk about uh, visual hygiene and any recommendations that you have for people who spend a lot of time on their devices or computers. Yes, um, there are several. One is, and I'll try to hit these very quickly. One is that if you're looking at a computer monitor, you want the monitor to be about 10 to 15 degrees below your line of sight, meaning if you're looking straight ahead, it's a little bit lower because if you if you have a computer monitor that's high, our eyes open up more, that exposes more of the surface of our eyes to dryness and irritation. It's visually less straining if it's a little bit below your line of sight. If you have a computer screen or a laptop screen, you want the angle of that screen to be slightly away from you where the top is further away than the bottom. That decreases glare. Um, you want to take frequent breaks. There's a mantra that we use called 20-20-20. Think of that 20-20 vision we talked about at the beginning of the program. And that sure. is very simply, every 20 minutes on a computer, 
take a 20 second break and look at something 20 feet away. So you have a window, look out the window, or just close your eyes for 20 seconds and envision you looking off to the horizon. That would be sort of like, um, you know, if you're lifting weights and you take breaks between sets, you get that little recovery time and you get to lift a little bit more. Um, that to limit the amount of time and do other activities um, is helpful. Keep reminding yourself to blink because our blink rate decreases by as much as half born on a computer. So reminding yourself to blink. There were blink exercises you can do where a few times a day, you blink really, really hard and hold it four or five times. That's found that helps to stimulate more tear production. Um, and uh, and those breaks are important. And, uh, and to make sure you have that blue light protection and to get your eyes examined to see if maybe even a mild prescription may help to reduce the strain that comes from uh, the tech use of technology. Well, this has been an incredibly, um, I mean, educational hour for me. I, I've learned some things that I did not know either. So thank you for that. Um, I would like to offer um, our um, listeners the opportunity to contact you. So if you can give that contact information one more time, that would be very helpful. Sure. I welcome you know, questions or communication or feedback, certainly. Uh, my website is drmyeyes.net. Um, all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-M-Y-E-Y-E-S, drmyeyes.net. My email address is my name, Stephen, with a P-H, dot Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, at drmyeyes.net. And my office number is 480-513-3937. And certainly, if anyone contacts you, Fazia, feel free to forward any of the questions or comments on, and I'll be happy to respond. Absolutely. I, I will definitely do that. And I, I really thank you. I want to thank you for being on the show today. This has been absolutely wonderful. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, my website is executivefunctioncoachaz.com. You can email me uh, through the website. You can also register for our upcoming magazine coming out January 2022. And that seems so far away, but it's not. So if you'd like to register for that, you can do that through the website. Just make sure you validate your email after you register. Uh, we look forward to um, next week. And, and if you'd like to read more about Dr. Cohen, uh, he has uh, we have his bio up on our uh, uh, Voice America website. We'll see you next time. Thank you for thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.